Hey, Daniela, can you hear us? Hello, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm good, and I do waive my anonymity. There we go. That's got that out of the way early, hasn't it? That's that's great. Everyone's happy now. Excellent. I mean, maybe you could just take a moment or two just to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. I mean, where where would you even start at this point? So um, (laughs) I usually start by saying that I was born in a cult. So I was born in the Children of God religious sex cult, and I was actually born three generations in. So my grandfather was the one that joined the cult in the late 60s, along with many, many Americans when it was our sort of era of cults. And then my mother was one of the first children born into the cult and grew up very close to all the leadership. I was born in 1987 to her when she was 15, um, after she was impregnated by one of the prophet's senior lieutenants, who just so happened to be older than my grandfather. So yes, my father's older than my grandfather. And um, I was then raised in this world of basically big commune walls. I was all over Asia and then Latin America in my first 15 years in the cult. And we, you know, I describe it as probably something like growing up in a group home, but just with a lot of Jesus. Like we were very institutionalized, no spontaneous moments of joy and what's more i think important about cults is they are always about labor so we were the workforce as children we were the ones that kept the communes running doing all the labor and we were also the ones out on the streets selling literature selling videos of and dancing and performing all of this which i was a part of as a child actress as well wow that is a lot so i mean this first of all where were you born I was born in the Philippines in Manila in 1987. And my mom was a 15 year old unmarried American at the time. So I got an American passport. Why was she there at that time? In the cult. That's where the the cult leader was living, was in the Philippines at the time. And it's interesting. I mean, what's the name of the full name of the cult again? The full name of the cult is the Children of God, and it was also called the Family. They tried to rebrand themselves several times wow. throughout the years. And and this obviously this appears to be some sort of uh, offshoot of Christianity. You already mentioned Jesus there. I mean, in what I don't know how familiar you are with sort of mainstream Christianity, uh, but how does it? I mean, in what ways does it latch onto that and map on? And what what ways does it like diverge from the the sort of central teachings of Christianity? Yeah, so the Children of God leader, the prophet David Berg, he came directly out of evangelical American Christianity. His mother was actually a popular revivalist pastor in the 30s. And what I believe he did was, as everyone was starting up their new religious movements, he took your basic evangelical Christianity with all of its power and control structures, and then he took one thing, which was control of sex which evangelical Christianity tends to do through purity culture. And he flipped it and he called it open love. I call it forced polyamory. And that was how, so this started with everyone should have sex with everybody because God is love and love is God and sex is God. And then it turned into religious prostitution where he was having first his new wife and then all of the women of the children of God go out to be fishers of men the way Jesus told them to in the Bible. And they called themselves flirty fishers and hookers for Christ. And then as the children started to come along, it became uh, the ideology that I call pedophilia for God, which was essentially just extending the, the love and sex beliefs to the children. I'm always fascinated with individuals that are somehow able to get a cult of, of that size, you know, off the ground and running. They often seem to be charismatic in, in, in various ways. And I just wanted to get your feeling on it because it seems blatantly obvious to me, a lot of these fundamentalist cults and, and religion in particular, it seems geared around benefiting the wants of men for reasons that seem obvious to me. But how do you feel in, in terms of sincerity, the leader of this, this cult? Do you think this is somebody who was just a manipulator or someone who genuinely thought he was serving a God? 
I think it's both. So I think he was definitely a manipulator. You know, David Berg was a failed preacher. He was very much an alcoholic. He was very much a pedophile. Way before he started the cult, he made his own sons let him sleep with their wives. So he was always doing this kind of stuff. And then he just sort of found his place and found his niche and, and hit his moment and went viral as you were. And then I think once you start having all of these followers and once you get off into the isolation of the cult, it does kind of become its own beast. And I do think the thing about cult leaders is that they drink their own Kool-Aid. And so they are, you know, they, they know they are not the mouthpiece of God, but at some point they start to believe that they are what they are saying and what everyone else around them is reflecting back to them is not crazy. So you, you said there that the children were sort of put to work there. There was a lot of labor involved. What what were the day-to-day things that you'd find yourself doing? I mean, just describe the setup to us. I mean, what, what would you see around you? What would it look like? What were you required to do? Yeah, so in our early years, we lived in communes of like 150, 100 people. Um, this was for sure like up in the leadership circles. So there's always a cult inside a cult. Um, which I say, you know, in the family was our leadership circles and Scientology is the Sea Org in the U.S. Army. It's the special forces. So the, the closer you get up to the, the head, you know, the more culty you're going to be. And so in my early years, we were living with 100, 150, sometimes 200 people. And we children, you know, we would wake up revelly, just like an army wake up call early in the morning. We would spend two hours studying the Bible and our prophet's words. And then we would start cleaning. Um, they called it Jesus job time, JJT. And it was just making children of every age work, you know, scrub walls, clean floors, prep food, all the kind of stuff you would think of in labor exploitation. And then the children of God specifically after they rebranded in the eighties, they became the family and they became a childhood entertainment business. So we did tapes, music tapes, music videos, eventually regular children's entertainment videos that were both kind of sanitized, non-denominational Christian, and also just not religious at all. And so I grew up in both Japan and Brazil, where these two big filming centers were for the children of God. So I was kind of little Lindsay Lohan of the apocalypse, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Um, as a child actress and I got, you know, the, the special opportunity to both be exploited in these movies and then also have to go out and sell them on the streets of Brazil and Mexico where I would later live. Little Lindsay Lohan of the apocalypse may just be my new band name. So thank you for that. Uh, if anything, so there's a lot of traveling going on there. And I suppose I'm wondering as well that the, the, this, this sizable commune as well, did this, were you unique in the, in the sense of you being like a, a young American girl? Was this a, a mix of many Americans, nationalities? Where, where are these people mainly from? So it started off as an American cult. And, you know, what's interesting is that we always see cults pop up in times of social turmoil. And so we saw it go from America and then in the 70s with Jonestown and with Charles Manson, David Burke caught on that things were heating up in America. The FBI was looking into the children of God. So he received a very convenient revelation that everybody should move to developing countries and change their names, of course, to Bible names. And then my family, for sure, kind of followed the path of cults which was then Asia in the 80s and then Latin America in the 90s. Um, And they also had pretty easy recruiting because now you're talking about recruiting people sometimes out of slums and extreme poverty in lives where even once they realize how messed up it is, it's still better for them maybe than what they had before. So it became a very international cult, but I was not at all rare as an American. What was rare, I think, is that we were taught that America was evil. It was called Babylon the Whore. And, you know, um, it was going to pay for its sins and God's judgment eventually. I mean, maybe that's a perfect segue to tell us how you ended up back in the United States. Then, How old were you when you traveled back to the States and what were the reasons for that? So the first time I came to the United States, I was 14 years old. It was in 2001. 
And so I had, you know, been born and raised completely abroad, but speaking English as my first language and being told that I was an American, but also that Americans were evil. So, you know, when I first landed in, uh, it was LAX, I had a leg broken in half. We had seven kids or something of the 25 siblings that I have. And I just remember it had never been so loud. Um, and I, I that's think, America. You know, that's America. <laughs> um, and, and somehow like, even though I do speak Portuguese and Spanish, I can kind of block those out, but English, just your English just comes right into my brain. And so it was the first time I had ever been anywhere that outside of the commune people spoke English. So it was this really weird kind of, I always say my biggest culture shock was coming to America for the first time. And what year was this? This was 2001. Oh, okay. So is this pre or post 9-11? So it's pre 9-11. So about six months later, right? I come down the stairs in our commune and the television's on. And like, we did not watch television. I had never seen live television outside of the World Cup because we live in Brazil on in our house. So I first am like, what movie is this? And someone's like, no, this is live news. So I kind of have to comprehend live news. And then, you know, as I am watching this horrible thing happen, you know, we're watching the second plane hit, watching people jump out of buildings, just obviously terrible, terrible carnage. And the folks around me, remember we talked about Babylon the whore, God's judgment on America, right? So the Americans around me are not crying the way that most Americans were. They are sort of praying and praising God for his judgment. And I remember hearing the term religious extremism on. And I think some of this comes to just my brain and how I make connections. But that word, that term stood out to me. And it was kind of my, I described it as my crack in the brainwashing. And that was the first moment I thought, like, are we the we the bad guys are we are we also religious extremists that's really interesting because i suppose in a way like yeah like a a lot of fundamentalists did did view the 9-11 attacks as a sort of god's reaction to sort of homosexuality or sin or you know the um, prostitution things like that and uh, here we have this huge catastrophic traffic event of that i'd never seen anything like that in my life at the time i was just a teenager and you're seeing it there on the TV. And I suppose this is an evidence writ large that God is existing. God is intervening. I mean, did, did you did you take it as that? Did you believe it as, as that at the time? So I didn't. Um, I do like how you point out that, like, that wasn't a unique reaction to the children of God to say that this was God's judgment, right? Like, a lot of yeah. the sort of more extreme evangelical Christians were doing this message and do it every time something horrible happens. Um So with me, I never believed it. You know, I say that I was not so much a cult survivor as just a prisoner in that cult for 15 years. And when I was six years old, I knew I didn't believe in God. Um, So for me, it was kind of more, you still need to have that crack to realize your programming and like the only world you've ever known. But I wasn't Like, I never believed, like, oh, yeah, this is God's judgment. I never believed when they told us the apocalypse was coming that it was actually going to come. And that, yeah, that was when it was just like, but now that I realize, like, that I think you people not just aren't for me, but might be really bad, wrong people, not cult, because the word cult was very anathema. But that was what made me start realizing, like, oh, I need to get out of here quickly. Tell, tell me about your education then in, in the Philippines, because obviously I've got my head, I've got it in my head of this commune, um, you know, where it's just it's just religion, religion, religion that's forced into your head. But it's just to speaking to you for, you know, moments, I can tell you're educated already. So, I mean, how, how were you taught other things there? So you're right. Like we basically didn't get any education at all. Um, I went from the Philippines to Japan, to Peru, to Brazil, where I spent 10 years growing up. And it was always, we're just behind the communes. They would, you know, they would teach us to read and write and all of that stuff really early. Hmm. And it was one of those things. And this was an actual belief of theirs that the children will defend us against the enemy at the gates. Right. So if your children are 
well-spoken and they can read and they can discuss the Bible and they can sing and perform in public and sit still for long amounts of time, nobody thinks that the children are in trouble. Um, this was actually seen really clearly in the Waco Branch Davidians case. Um, you know, overly well-behaved children uh, in large groups are usually that way because they have been severely beaten and are in a lot of fear, I would mm. say. Um, you know, and, and programmed to be that way. But we didn't do school at some point after the prophet died. So the prophet had declared that he would teach us everything we needed to know. After the prophet died, his wife took over and she definitely tried to make it safer for the children. And she gave us things like required schooling in which we would do kind of the most religious of the religious homeschooling books from the US, like from the Mennonites or the Mormons. Um, but it was very sporadic because again, they needed us for labor and the labor always came first. And of course it wasn't called labor. It was your mission to God. So I had a couple years of doing dedicated school between about nine and 10. And then at 11, I was put into the kitchen to cook three meals a day for a lot of people and sort of spent a lot of time being a kitchen slave after that in both Brazil and Mexico. Um, but I would say that, you know, so when I got to the US and tried to enroll in high school, I'm 15 years old, I've just been kicked out of this cult. I have a social security card and a passport and that is it. And they're just like, we cannot enroll you in high school, you don't exist. Um, and this is where I would say, like you mentioned being well-educated, like I was obviously not well-read, but we were well-trained in reading hours and hours and hours of literature and then dissecting it, right? And so my ability to get really good at doing that in something that I absolutely didn't believe in in a game that I was playing for survival, I think translated really well to dropping into high school. And then when I went to college, I majored in literature and history. And it was fascinating for me because I was learning all about the world and normal people, but I could also kind of write and analyze things, I think at a level higher than many, you know, uh, people who've been through traditional school. That's amazing. That's really impressive. I mean, I'm, I'm really intrigued as well, just to get your opinion on someone who's, you know, ostensibly American, you know, you, uh, you, and then you come to America and then there's this whole culture that you're not familiar with. What, what kind of things stuck out to you there? I mean, what, what kind of things really jumped out to you is like, this is, this is peculiar. This is, this is very strange. Um, okay. So what things stuck out to me about America being strange? Um, definitely. Okay. I thought it was very loud, right? It was very Christian. Right. Mm. Like I was told like Americans were kind of like the children of the Antichrist. And it still surprises me to this day just how Christian America is, because we were taught that they were also very different. Um, you know, the the idea that I remember when I went to high school, like every kid had a cell phone that their parents paid for. And I just I could not fathom parents <laughs> kind of doing something like that for children. Um and then I would say like American exceptionalism really stood out to me. Um, these days I define it as like the little girl whose daddy told her she was the most beautiful girl in the world. And now she's a grown up and she still believes it. And I think, <laughs> you know, all my time in the US, all through my time in the military, like I get called un-American so often because I just do not accept that we are the number one country in the world or number one at anything that we don't actually have statistics to back up that we are number one at. Yeah, there is a very strange, I mean, sometimes it's impressive, but p patriotism really is a big deal in America. We, we, in, in Britain, we just, we all hate ourselves. So it's fine. It's kind of the inverse uh, we have there. But I mean, you just said you you, uh, you were enrolled in the military there. Uh, they seem like, yeah. this is this is an incredible story. So what, what did you do in the military? And when did you decide you were, you were going to enlist? So, and let me tell you on the patriotism thing, there's a term called toxic patriotism. And we've sure. definitely seen that on the rise since 9-11. Um, so I decided I was going to a, a commission, actually. I became an officer um, after college. And fun fact, this was the hardest part of my book to write, which nobody could ever guess. Um, so I end up joining the military now, looking back, I see for all the reasons that people join a cult, 
right? I'd fallen into a toxic relationship and he pulled me into the military. That was very, very hard for me to admit to the world 10 years later. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Um, but also, I, I had lost my whole group, lost my whole sense of identity, mm. and spent six years doing high school and college kind of really floundering socially. Um, you know, I was very successful in school. I graduated at the top of my class, gave a speech, but I was not fitting. And it was also just so, so, so much brain work, right? Trying to catch up and trying to pass. And so at the time, I really think I looked forward to, you know, the army says, like, you can be successful in the army if you're just in the right place, the right time, the right uniform. And like, I looked forward to three months of basic training and not having to think and just having to be programmed. Um, and I, I really think I wanted to find like another group. And that's what the military gives you is this immediate sense of group and belonging and all of these other things that cults give to people. Well, I mean, it's, it's incredible that you've, you've come through this experience and you, you've prospered and done some incredible things as well. It's not always the story of people who've had similar experiences, unfortunately. And it just makes me wonder whether or not the, the people responsible for running these cults and the things they did, which were, you know, heinous and deeply illegal and, and unethical, that they had any sort of justice visited upon them by any, I mean, have they just been able to waltz back into the USA and just get on with their lives as if, as if nothing happened? So... Generally, no, we've not had justice. We have had two convictions in Scotland who recently made it no statute of limitations on sex crimes against children. So uh, two people were able to pursue their abusers. Um, I would say, uh, so the founding member of Fleetwood Mac, one of the founding members joined the cult. He still receives royalties. He's still in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, he's a very famous pedophile and just really bad guy. Um, and generally in the U S like all of our statutes of limitations are over. And the interesting thing about cults is most of us were our abusers. We don't even know their legal names. So really, really hard to actually go against people whose legal names you don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I always ask this this question of, of, of people who have had really, you know, tough, horrible experiences at the hands of religious fundamentalists and, they, they, and they've come through the other side. And it's, I, it's, I suppose, it's, has this ruined the idea of religion or spirit, spirituality for you in general? Because one of the themes I tend to find from people who are, have come through something like this and they're vocal activists again for their experience now, they tend to be staunch atheists now. They've decided that, you know, not just was this harmful, but religion in general is harmful. And if it's not too much of a personal question, do you, do you mind telling us where you are on that score? Are, are you going to hell? Are you not? I suppose is my question. <laughs> So, like I say, I think I was just born an atheist around religious fundamentalists. Like I think logic is my my god and my religion. Um, I definitely don't think like all religions are cults. Yeah. I do think that all religions, so cults rely on thought-stopping cliches, which is quotes that they throw at you that you don't think about that shut down your critical thinking, right? And all religions have a point at which this can't be proven by logic and you therefore must take things on faith. Yeah. God, God so, works in mysterious ways is probably one of the biggest <laughs> ones, I suppose. Yes. 
yeah, boys will be boys is another great one. Um, yeah. But I think that all religions have thought stuffing cliches embedded in them. And so I'm very skeptical. But for me, it was as simple as I'm getting away from these people. I'm not thinking about religion. I'll figure it out once I've learned how to survive. And then being in college, you know, I remember I took a class on religion and or no, it was on Mexican history. And we're talking about how the uh, Mexican natives religion was almost like identical to Christianity and some basic parts And these two religions had never interacted. And this is where I just kind of was like, oh yeah, there's only so many ways to build a story and build characters. And, you know, I am much, much more fascinated by the group behavior. And I know that stories and religions and morals is how we live in groups. So I'm fascinated by it. But I think short of being knocked off my horse on the road to Damascus um, and having a religious experience, I would not even be able to kind of believe in anything. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm all for skepticism and logic and I'm, I'm a non-believer. But it's, it's interesting what you're saying about being fascinated with some of these things and in Mexico in particular. I, I like to visit Mexico. I think it's a beautiful place. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with the, uh, you know, the uh, folk saint, uh, Santa Muerte they have there. I always buy a little Santa Muerte statue every time I go. It's been, you know, termed the narco saint. And that's basically just another offshoot of Christianity. And it is, um, it is fascinating how these little things pop up around the world and how quickly they find subscribers um I, I mean it's fascinating to me as well that you're talking about logic and, and pushing back against religion in that sense and I, is this a case of just something you kept come to on your own or was having access to more information key and you know enlightenment thinkers things like that so i think it's my personality right so when i went when i set out to write uncultured i had just started my master's in organizational psychology and come across this this group behavior concept that humans will do almost anything to fit into their groups. Um, and that's generally true. There's a small, small percentage of people that don't. Um, so there's a great picture out of Poland in 1939 and everybody's hiling Hitler and one dude is just standing there like this. Yes. And yes. Kind of like, it's a really good visual of that. So I'm definitely that person that doesn't go along. Um, I think that I am not neurotypical. So I think like that probably really influenced some stuff for me. And so logic and rules and understanding hierarchy and understanding the way things work, like always, always, always has fascinated me. And cults really are just kind of groups that the, the logic has really, really broken down. So I was this like, little neurodiverse child that was obsessed with logic and everything in the world around me was not logical so in my mind it was just survive until you get out of here that's astonishing to me because obviously the waters you're swimming in it's, it's difficult to figure out how you could possibly comprehend anything else especially the, the things you're experiencing and we were touching on before about how a lot of these cults are obviously male dominated or in the way that they favor them the men the men seem to profit um more than other women various ways of using the word profit there i suppose uh, and i was just wondering how that compares to something that's also i'm not comparing it to a cult as such but something that's very male dominated often centered about around masculinity and that's the the army how is it being a woman in that environment as well in the, in the united states yes so of course i am the one that did compare the army to a cult um, oh you went there okay <laughs> yes. So in my book, in the prologue, it is me at basic training holding this 50 pound duffel bag above my head. And it's this sort of famous experiment. And if you understand about group behavior, it is both an impossible thing to do, hold a 50 pound duffel bag above your head for two or three hours. It's also an irrational thing to do. And what we know about group behavior is that once you've done something irrational and arbitrary for the purpose of the group, you are so much more bonded to that mm. concept of the group as to be very unlikely to raise questions again. Um, so what's interesting is that, so in my prologue, right, I'm just there going, oh, I just joined another cult. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing for me. It was, oh, I know how to do this. You know, like I grew up in a group. I know how to act the perfect soldier. I know how to, I mean, we had, we had called ourselves the army of God, right? We grew up doing battle drills for getting the antichrist. Um, and actually I saw a lot of similarities in Prince Harry's book, 
where he goes from the royal family, another kind of total institution into the British army. And he sort of does very well because he knows how to be not an individual. Oh, the royal family is um, totally a cult. <laughs> totally, for sure. totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've even got the silly they, hats. They've even got the silly hats. So there's, there's the dead giveaway. Um, yeah. And then I would just say, so I expected these militaristic parallels and I kind of thought it was funny that everyone else was having such a hard time with it. What I didn't expect and what I was very surprised by was the rape culture and was, you know, what it was to be a woman in uniform. You know, we would just, at that time, women were banned from combat and we were just told by our drill sergeants on the first day, you know, women in the army, you're either a bitch, a slut, or a D word for lesbian. Um, this being at a time when you're not allowed to be that. And, you know, you're just othered from the very first moment. And especially with extremely strong groups like this, especially with a group like the U.S. Army, you know, the other becomes the enemy. And what the U.S. Army does to their enemy is not very nice. What does, um, sorry, go ahead. And so a big part of the reason I wrote my book, Uncultured, was because of this parallel that I noticed that not only is the rape culture and the abuse and the sexual violence and the sexual harassment kind of almost as bad as what I experienced in the sex call and to the point of what you said, right? Like very, very damaging culture for women. But there's also the same parallel of it all happens behind these big tall walls, either on an army base, a military base or on a deployed base. And then we never talk about it, right? So it's happening to all of us, but we never talk about it. And I wanted to finally write a book of someone who was, you know, a super proud veteran, right? Like in the cult, I was a true believer. I'm still a very proud daughter of the 101st. I was part of helping take down the combat ban. Like, I'm so proud of what I did. But I also want to talk about how I was, you know, pulled off a mission and warned to watch my back against the 25 American soldiers that I was to expect to have my back out wow. on the objective i mean let, let's talk about that a little bit i mean wh how how are we um i mean what can you say what can you point to rather to to sort of exemplify what you'd say is rape culture in the american army what sort of things are we we're talking about here so a lot of it i think comes from this combat ban right is that so when you when you take a bunch of individuals and program them to commit violence on behalf of state which is what militaries do. And then you have 10% of people, which was, we were around 10, 11% at the time I served. They're around 17% now. Until you get to 20%, your negative stereotypes aren't even subconsciously being addressed yet. So women in the military still have huge problems. But at 10% of the population, like, and, and they're being told, this very violent force is now being told that they are better than us, that they can go do things that we cannot do. Um, of course, none of it was ever true. They just weren't letting us into the combat to prove, to prove the difference. Um, so, so that is one thing Like I think like it really comes from and that humans have shown that we always stack rank and then we tend to sort of kill or really, really abuse the ones at the bottom. Um, and then other than that, it's just, I think it, it really comes down to the fact that rape and war have always been intertwined, right? Mm. Rape for most of history was called the spoils of war and was one of the reasons that men went to war. And we really have not dealt with the history of rape and war in our modern military. So what's interesting is, you know, we Americans have this problem with the police killing brown and black people because policing in America is directly tied to slavery and racism and they haven't dealt with that in their culture. So we soldiers look at police and we're like, what? why can't you stop killing citizens? And we in the military have this problem with rape culture that we have never dealt with and don't want to talk about. And so the police look at us, the rest of Americans look at us and think, you know, why is this problem so, 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 so bad? Um, and I, I really do think it has to do with that. It has to do with the glorification and deification of the soldier in America. <sighs> yeah. 
there's so much there's so much yeah and i mean it strikes me here talking to you i mean you you i mean this is i mean this is a compliment you seem like a wonderfully well-adjusted smart individual and but i imagine also there must be a lot of trauma that you've had to you've had to work through and that you still have to deal with and and i hope i'm not making too many assumptions here but i mean if if you're comfortable talking about that i mean how how do you how have you managed to carry on and and do what you do and and prosper in the way you have and how do you deal with it uh on a day-to-day basis if, if indeed that is something you do need to do Yes, uh, certainly. I have I have all the kinds of trauma and we definitely take you there in this book and really show you kind of the depths that human groups can get to. Um, I don't think I ever realized how much disassociation I did as a child and mm. into being an adult until readers of Uncultured told me that I described disassociation very well. Um, so for me, a big part of healing has been, you know, learning to live in my body and stay in my body and uh, build a life that I want to be in. Um, and also, you know, I think what so many of us trauma survivors do is just say, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I survived and put our heads down and just run and try mm. to, you know, make our lives better. And my book, <laughs> there's actual running because I became a big professional runner um so it's kind of this theme of like i i kind of believe that i can just be perfect enough and good enough and polished enough and pass enough that eventually i won't be the girl from a cult i will be you know shiny captain mestinac and when i finally get there and i'm still broken that was kind of when things really came crashing down on me and i really had to start focusing on on healing and i think part of the trauma narrative is that people like to have it nicely wrapped up in a little bow and say like, oh, you look like you're fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I seem fine now, but I'm going to go have a like two hour PTSD hangover after this. <laughs> wow. You know, I um, all that to say for me, it has been taking it slow, learning that you don't have to be fine, learning that I can be you know, amazing, smart, intelligent, Harvard educated, and also broken and PTSD and confused and still deconstructing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a a remarkable way of looking at it. And I'm just like, every time I ask you a new question, you reveal something about an achievement or something, you know, the the army was dropped in there, and then, you know, you wanted to be a professional runner. Is there something about you that's like, you feel that you need to be constantly striving for something? Do you feel like perhaps you're constantly under this pressure to achieve something, given given the start you had? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) You know, and next next month, it is my 20 year anniversary from walking away from the cults. And it is also when my master's degree from Harvard will be conferred. Um, and yes, I plan to do a, I can buy myself flowers uh, dance on TikTok. <laughs> what sort of cake do you buy for that occasion though? I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> a, a gluten-free one for me. Um, that, that's the trauma. But I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how, when I left the cult, my motivation was, you know, I was famous inside the cult. So 10,000 people are waiting for me to fail. F them, I will not fail. Um, I will do anything that I need to do, but I will be successful. And I certainly wasn't going to fall into stripping and drugs and all of the other things that so many of my fellow cult babies did. And so instead I fell into perfectionism, which was absolutely, I think my heroin addiction. And like you said, you know, um, I just striving and striving and striving. And I actually think this master's degree I just completed was my first sort of healthy, healthy goal that I was doing for me. You know, I went to study organizational psychology and I knew I was doing it and I was doing it to get the information, not to prove anything to anyone. And, um, yeah, that taught that taught me a lot. And it definitely taught me that perfectionism is that's one of the things we're taught in cults. Like you always have to be perfect. You can never be idle. You always have to be achieving something. And that is the stuff that stuck with me that I didn't realize that I am actively fighting against these days. 
Well, congratulations on your academic achievements. That's, that's, I keep saying impressive, but uh, I do genuinely mean it. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the just moving back to the, the cult then, I suppose, are there still like uh, remembrance of this cult still around? Is it still operating in any sort of guise? So, yes, there are about 1,400 people that still subscribe to them online. So in the 2010s, I think like 2009 or something, When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to the customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Koros snacks have none of that. Oh, I can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, Salted pistachio. I've got a little uh, chocolate bar here, I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. They kind of realised that they were falling apart. None of the children were staying in. The joiners were getting too old. So they kind of did this whole, hey, that thing we told you about living separate from the world, psych, like go, go back and try to live your lives now and, and we'll be here for religious support. So not that many people are still involved. Most people kind of woke up then. My grandfather, however, still runs the money and they still bring in over a billion dollars a year. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and this is probably sorry, but... a good time to say anything that calls itself the family just, just be careful. Keep away. I mean, it sounds very... Royal family, church, <laughs> whatever it might be. If it calls itself the family, it's probably... Isn't there something like Manson-esque uh, yeah. linked to that as well? So, I mean, that's what I was going to ask as well. Another question in terms of family. So, I mean, obviously, we, you and your mother are involved. If you don't mind me asking, is your mum still around? She is, yes. She's 50 years old. And she has eight, eight of her own children. Um, and she lives in Texas. She left the cult about a decade after I did. Um, so we had this very interesting, I was the mentor to her relationship. Um, but my mom's wonderful. We have a very close relationship. We spend so much of our time, like she's the one that I talk to about cults and all the stuff that I read. And I think she and I both share the, the thing that we are more fascinated by learning about human behavior then we want to be angry. Hmm. I mean, I'm really glad to hear that, that you have this relationship with, with your mother. Because I think a, a lot of people, m myself included, would have thought maybe there'd be some animosity there or some sort of resentment. But your mum, I suppose, being principal, in, in, I would imagine bringing you into this cult in a roundabout way. I appreciate, obviously, she was a victim of this cult as well. But a lot of things that, bad things that may have happened to you certainly happened while you were under a guardianship. Is that something you've managed to work through? Yeah, you know, when I was, 19, I had a lot of anger towards my own parents, um, especially when you get kicked out of home at 15 and dropped off in a new country with zero dollars. It can be a bit scary. Um, I'll take you with <laughs> I, I realized pretty early, you know, my mom, like by the time she was 15, she already had a child. Um, she she helped us as much as I think she could. And I think she got away from the cult as soon as she could, which for her was at 39 with the seven children she still had at home. Um, but she's also, I would say, the only one that has apologized to me. So she's the only one that has said, I'm sorry, like we realize what it was now and I'm sorry for what we put you through. Most of the rest of our parents just say, yeah, we realized it was a little crazy, but can't y'all just get over it? Um, 
And I, I really think actually part of what allows me to do this work of studying calls and, and write this book and everything was the fact that my mother was also born and raised in it. And so I could kind of have my deconstruction without having to lose her. Whereas most of my peers are still very much living closeted and they're afraid of what people will think of them if they talk about their cult background. And they'll also, they're also afraid that they'll lose the relationship with their parents if, yeah. you know, they are trying to come to terms with their own trauma. I mean, I suppose what's really helpful is having, you know, people like you who have come through this experience. And I, I, I often find this remarkable every time when someone's had this experience, because just for me, just them breaking free and having their own life, that should be enough. And I think they deserve that for sure. What I always find incredibly remarkable is the fact that they're willing to relive it or talk publicly about it or, you know, be an activist on be, on behalf of their experience. So what, what's the mindset there between, you know, being somebody who just wants to completely cut loose and never think about it again, which I'd find completely understandable versus someone who, like you who wants to now bang the drum about it and actually draw attention to what happened to you? Yeah, so first of all, I don't think those are different people, right? Because I, for 10 years, lived in the closet about it and didn't want yeah. to talk about it and have all the same fears. Um, and so it's, it's sort of interesting now um, watching my peers who are back where I was thinking that their life is going to fall apart if they talk about it. Um, and I also don't think that it is either you live in complete hiding and have no close friends or you write a book and go on international podcasts, right? <laughs> you can also just come out and talk about your trauma with friends and that helps you connect with people. There's definitely no like psychologically accepted way that it's going to work out for any of them that are just trying to put it behind them because of course yeah. like we were all programmed in this extreme environment um but you know i would also say that for me like i was not necessarily trying to be an activist about cults i wanted to go study group behavior i'm very into being intelligent and don't want to be seen necessarily as this cult girl this trauma survivor and so I went and got all this education and wrote this whole group book about group behavior, which still turned into a story of trauma and survival and still turned into me being an activist in many ways about cults. So I wouldn't necessarily say I like knew what I signed up for when I, <laughs> when I made all these choices. Um, well, I I suppose one of the, the byproducts of this as well is it, it, you know, other people may see it who've had a similar experience who and may feel more empowered to speak up about this issue. Have you hear from people privately? Do you do you know of anyone that you've kind of encouraged to sort of speak up and share their experience? One hundred percent. And you know what? I say sometimes that I got lucky that the children of God is considered to be a cult because I have now connected with the entire like religious trauma community and we have so much in common. And so like, you know, ex Mormons are finding me all the time. People from Southern Baptist church, just there's this whole growing group of people that call themselves ex evangelicals <laughs> that, you know, are, are definitely reading the book. People are recommending it to their therapists. I've personally heard of like 20 therapists that have read it because of their patients. So I think like that is all, you know, I, I worked pretty hard to contextualize stuff and, and to, you know, the reason we write memoir and read memoir is so that somebody else's experience can like sort of tell us about our lives. So we've definitely had that feedback from the trauma community and the religious community and then not to mention like the veteran community and especially the women veterans definitely really connect to to the book. And we haven't hardly seen a woman veteran just get to say whatever she wants on an international platform about the military um, with a publisher willing to support it going this far. I mean, that that's another big issue there. I mean, because obviously it's one thing to trash God in america but the idea of uh trashing the military not necessarily trashing the military i don't mean to put words in your mouth here but being you know overtly critical of the military that's another thing i mean what what's going what gets somebody in more trouble in the united states in this day and age being anti you know religion or being anti-military 
So, I mean, being anti-military will definitely get you hated on by a huge segment of the population. And it's not just split into liberals. And, you know, people think of the American military as a very right-wing thing, but it's actually about 40% liberals, 60% uh, right-wing. And um, yeah, I, I feel like I got rejection after rejection after rejection on this book because... I didn't even know how critical it was going to be. But if you put a sex cult and the U.S. Army in the same book, you're asking people to compare them. And then January 6th happened when domestic terrorists stormed our capital to try to uh, stop the peaceful transfer of power. And 20% of those were veterans. And significantly, only 13% of U.S. Americans are veterans. So there was an over-index of veterans at the Capitol, um, which my husband and I knew as it was happening because we could recognize the other veterans. And That's I said to him, in that moment, I said, oh, this book is going to sell big. And that- it, sold, it sold to the next publisher who saw it. She was like, give me this right now because we're all trying to understand what is happening in America right now. That is fascinating. And I, I was not aware of that stat at all. So, I mean, is there any um, distinction made there between people who actually entered the Capitol building or people that would just that had arrived just for the gathering beforehand? Because it get, can get a um, bit hazy between the two, can't it? It was people that were charged. So oh, OK. Were actually charged, um, which, of course, you know. In Brazil, when they stormed the Capitol, they arrested hundreds of people that night. In America, when they stormed the Capitol... Yeah, not a lot of preparation there. I mean, uh, one thing that strikes me as well in terms of um, a, a lot of these cults, uh, especially the fact that it, the, you know, the, it, much of it, for, especially your experience, was pre two thousand. This is in a, a, a non, almost a non internet age. Certainly, it wasn't something people commonly had access to and these sort of cults thrive and rely on the idea of controlling the flow of information i would imagine to operate and but also the internet can be used for nefarious cult-like means as as well i mean i suppose my question is in your opinion has the internet made it harder for cults like the one you're in to flourish or has it made it slightly easier in some senses Uh, The internet has absolutely made it easier for cults. So let's talk about that. You know, I say that in the 60s and 70s, when you wanted to isolate an American, you which cults rely absolutely rely on isolation, right? Nobody's arguing that if you wanted to isolate an American, you had to kind of physically take them away to your compound in Texas and Brazil, um, as happened to my grandfather, because they were all reading the same newspapers, watching the same television, right? You could be on different sides of the political spectrum, but there was some level of a shared reality. And nowadays we have AI, right? We have like, you can vote on what kind of ad you want to see on this show right now. So it is definitely possible to get isolated in your own thinking bubble in the confines of your own home. And this was actually what President Obama's last speech was about in office was, you know, after the big upset election. And he was like, look, like, we're all living in our silos. That's Mm. why this stuff is happening. That's why my next book that I'm working on now is called The Culting of America. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I'm I'm increasingly concerned about this idea of almost parallel realities people are living thanks to the internet. You know, there are people that are utterly convinced that it's demonstrably true that things that are objectively false have occurred and they can find enough people to sort of... Uh, you know, provide them with enough gratification or agreement for them to, mm-hmm. you know, think they're on the right path. And that's, that's quite scary to me. So I suppose it's difficult because the internet's a relatively new phenomenon. It's, a, it's an infant, isn't it? It's, it's difficult to know how we go about addressing this. Do you, do you have an idea yeah. of what the antidote might be? And it's, and you know, the internet is changing everything, right? So one yeah. of the other things that has always gone without question is that cults need to have a leader. But QAnon is really making people question that. Right. So like, yeah, things really, really have changed. Um, My answer is. um, So so first, let me say this. I think that anything, any kind of idea can become a cult, can become toxic, can be not necessarily going to be called a cult by society, but it's going to be all those things that you can see. So one of my 
my rules for, for groups that isn't cults. Rule number one is don't rape the children, um, which we think is obvious, but we can all think of examples, right? Of like yeah. organizations and individuals that we've allowed or forgiven for doing so. And it gets down to the 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 means just ends justifies the means mentality is kind of always dangerous. But then here in the US, we had Pizzagate, mm. which was literally people getting radicalized over the idea of don't rape the children. Like, of course, sex trafficking is wrong. Of course, everyone wants to fight that. And I saw some of my own peers from the sex cult get radicalized into QAnon because of that idea. Yeah. Um, so one of my things that I say is that to remember that cults are always about labor, exploiting people's labor is a part of cults. So you can always ask yourself, like, how much am I giving this group? Any group, it doesn't have to be religious. Gyms become cults a lot. Right, so how much time am I giving this group? And what am I getting in return? Another thing is how much of your free brain time are you spending in just one thing? Yeah. Right. So I love Brene Brown, but if all you do is listen to Brene Brown and read her books and watch her podcasts and follow her on social media and you don't have time to do anything else, then you might be in the cult of Brene Brown. Um, and then I have a whole bunch of things, but then one of the final things is just, it really is like, don't let yourself get isolated in thought, right? Read books, read books from all genres, right? Talk to people from all walks of life. Um, one of the interesting things that I heard a cult scholar say once, if you're worried if someone is in like an idea cult or, or how you can tell is, well, if you had that person in your complete control for two weeks, how many new ideas could you introduce them to with the people you know? And if they had you in their control for two weeks, how many new ideas could they introduce you to? So this is helpful, for example, some members of my family, I could introduce them to thousands of new ideas or hundreds or thousands of people that think completely differently from me. They could not, I think, introduce me to one single person that doesn't think exactly the way they think along sort of their political and belief spectrum. Hmm. Um, so I, I do think that can be like an interesting thing for us. And then I also like to tell people like the whole, how do you define a cult? I just like to be like, no, I'm not gonna define it for you. Because as soon as you define a cult, toxic groups will use your definition to prove to their members that they are not a cult. So I think the flip side of that is that you should walk into every group that you're a part of regularly, ask yourself, is this a cult? Yeah, quick and, cult check. And if you don't laugh like that, that's your first, that's your first sign. <laughs> so I suppose the most important question, which I thought I'd save it to the end because I'm the anticipation's actually been killing me is what is it you are knitting? I, I need to know. Ooh, I am knitting a sleeve for a sweater. So see, I discovered that if you do cables on them like this, they do pressure. So they kind of feel like a hug. Um, That's coming along nicely. I don't know if uh, my, my mother-in-law is a fantastic knitter. And this, this Christmas, I don't know how familiar you are with the movie Big Lebowski, but she made me the character's sweater. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, I was going to say a cult classic, but I'm rather worried about misusing that word now. That's okay. I uh, I never really got into movies that much. I like TV shows much better. Um, Fair yes, enough. Knitting is awesome. There's also like a whole history of how women have used knitting to just counteract the patriarchy forever, including in uh, World War, I think both World Wars actually, when they, spies would use knitting patterns as messages because basically none of the men on earth understood <laughs> that's very clever well um daniela I, despite the subject matter i've really enjoyed speaking to you i've, I've learned a lot and i'm uh, i will definitely pick up uh, your book and I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh the uh the next one because i need to navigate need to know, know how to navigate the <laughs> internet uh but is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before i let you get back to what's left of your day yeah, thanks so much. Um, I would definitely recommend the audio if you're an audio person. The New York Times says it's good and you get all the proper pronunciations of all the cult words and the army words. 
Um, for any of your people that want to come join me on TikTok, my brand is kind of, I tell you crazy cult things and then tell you where to look for it in the world around you. And that's where I'm like kind of crowdsourcing, writing this next book, talking to people, getting their ideas, doing more research. Um, so that's really cool. And I'm also a group behavior speaker. So if you ever want someone in person or virtually to come into your company and like tell you unforgettable things about group behavior in ways that are going to stick and actually make a difference and be entertaining, I am totally your person. Awesome. Daniela, thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Take care. Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made, Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made use paid, learn how a British-born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.